Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Morning, everyone. So we've uh, made it through the semester on campus, uh, which is a great answer to prayer, I think. And uh, it looks like we're going to be bookended by uh, some form of lockdown. Um, uh, the very minimal restrictions we're under at the moment, when they were brought in, a friend of mine on Facebook made this report. He said that there were tears from his young daughter who said, does this mean I can't do ballet? Uh, his wife, the mother, replied, sweetheart, you don't do ballet. But the daughter replied, but what if I want to? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad too, isn't it? And uh, um, uh, my wife actually, uh, Nat, uh, found the five-day lockdown harder than the 111-day lockdown. So it's, um, it, we are in a really difficult national crisis presently, and we may be for some time. And interestingly, this psalm is uh, thought by some scholars to be exactly that, uh, an individual lament. So the psalmist cries out to God, as we just heard, and uh, it's about a national crisis. And we're really reading between the lines to make that connection. Some people think this is during the exile, uh, because many of the psalms that are about the exile point back to the Exodus. So the second half of the psalm, which we'll get to later on, is a recollection of the Exodus, kind of thinking of the Exodus to give the nation some hope in the present. Uh, but other psalms, not from the exile, also recall the Exodus. So it's not certain by any means. And there's a kind of vagueness about, and I hope my Old Testament scholar friends don't mind me saying this, there's a sort of vagueness about the uh, historical context to many of the psalms. And I think it's actually a good thing. I, I think vagueness is a virtue when it comes to the Psalms because you can kind of plug your own troubles in and uh, it, it, the lack of specificity gives you an opportunity. Now, I just want to say to, to be clear that vagueness is not a virtue on an exam or in an assignment. <laughs> so, uh, do you need comfort and relief from God today? So the title of the sermon was uh, Comfort in Times of Trouble. The problem, I think, with a title like that, having made up the title, is that uh, is it gives the impression that, you know, I've, I've tried medication, I've tried chatting with friends, I um, had some extra coffees and uh, I'm seeing a psychologist, maybe I'll try God for some comfort. Yep. So just another option in your seeking comfort. And I don't, we've got to be careful, that's not what this is about. This is about comfort when the psalmist has his faith unsettled. So he's doubting the sovereignty and love of God. That's what's happening. And it, we, it, it'll derail his uh, service of God. So that's really what we're after here, friends. So uh, whatever uh, situation you're in, um, uh, and whether you're seeking comfort at the moment, that, that's really what comfort is for, to reassure us of our lives before God. Uh, but certainly we do uh, find the psalmist looking for comfort in a time of trouble and uh, we can learn from his experience. So if you are suffering some discomfort presently, this is a helpful psalm for you. Uh, if you're not, 
Uh, you will at some stage, as Steph or someone said up here. And uh, um, the, this is to tuck away, and maybe there's some people you're seeking to help find comfort from God. There's also some help there for you in that regard too. So first up in verses 1 to 3, we're encouraged to pray earnestly for comfort and relief in times of trouble. And it's really earnest, isn't it? So, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. So the repetition brings that out. And the purpose of the crying out is just to be heard by God. Then in verse 2, when I was in distress, a number of different translations take this, when I was in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. So this is a a kind of dramatic response to distress and uh, full throttle. Uh, Verse 3, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. So remembering God and meditating here uh, was to no avail. Didn't, Didn't do him any good, actually. So it's not exactly a pretty picture of prayer, is it? This is not uh, uh, the posture of prayer you will get in a prayer seminar or read very often in a a book about prayer. Uh, To some extent, it's really helpful to us because it's one of the examples where the volume's turned up. Yeah, and sometimes a really extreme example can help us in our own less extreme circumstances. I think, too, there are cultural differences. Uh, Some of us... uh, Uh, stretch out hands in praise like a tree. I'm more like a stump when it comes to uh, praising God in church. Um, And and that's just a cultural thing. It's my Austrian heritage and my Baptist no-dancing background. So so there are things that feed into how demonstrative you are in prayer and praise, aren't they? And that's just fine. We're We're all different. It's a wonderful thing about the Christian faith that it acknowledges and embraces cultural differences. But the intent is clear. When we're in distress, we should seek earnestly God's comfort and relief. So, um, when disheartened, overwhelmed, uh, we should express that desperation to God. Now, note here, though, this is not because of the psalmist's unbelief. It's actually a result of his faith and belief. The reason he remembers God and meditates is he believes in the goodness, love, and sovereignty of God. It's just that at the moment, he's not feeling it. He's not um, uh, seeing the benefits in his uh, uh, lived experience, to use that modern day term. So I think that's, that's an important thing about lament. These are not the grumblings of unbelief. They're kind of disbelief that God hasn't acted on his behalf, given what he knows about God. So where does he look? Where should we look for confidence that God will help us in times of trouble? Verses 4 to 6 are quite surprising, I think, uh, because if I've understood them correctly, he looks to the times in his life when he's had blessings from God, and it doesn't cut it. Have a look, verse 4. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked. We'll get to the asking in a moment. But certainly, um, his troubles are so bad he can't sleep or speak. And for hope, he brings to mind the kind of happier times when God had blessed him, protected him, provided for him and for the people of God. 
And those times in the past had led him to sing on his bed rather than lie awake feeling in anguish. Um, Again, some of us sing in the shower and in the car and in bed and other places, others uh, not so much. Uh, But the, the basic point is there. Thinking about what God had done for him in the past seemed like a good idea. Times, and we, we should do this too, times of surprising provision, of encouragement, of great opportunities, of precious moments with Christian friends, of shared tasks, successful witness, uh, answered prayer, a sense of God's presence. All of those things are good. And it reminds me in Genesis when, when good things happen, they kind of build a pile of rocks to remember uh, what uh, God had done. And that is a good thing. But the former glory days don't seem to cut it for him in seeking God's comfort here. Because in verses 7 to 9, we see that trouble can make you doubt God's care and love for you. Now, these are really painful verses. Six questions, one after the other. Have a look, verse, verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Almost painful to read, isn't it? And at the end of that, you think, you know, tell us what you really think. So, so he's really desperate at this point. And uh, if, without looking at the context, you could think, well, he's talking about God's favour, his unfailing love, his promises, his mercy, his compassion. There's wonderful things, aren't they? But the problem is uh, they're framed as a believer wondering about them all and doubting them. The psalmist might believe it, but he doesn't feel that this God is acting in his life presently. God has forgotten me, is how he feels. Now again, such questions, just to repeat, are not unbelieving grumbling, but a lament to prod God to act according to his nature on behalf of the psalmist in love mercy and compassion, and to keep his promises to the psalmist. So where does he recommend that we look for relief in times of trouble? How can we feel confident that God does actually have us in mind, that he loves us and is in control? Well, in verses 10 to 20, the psalmist has the answer. Uh, Verses 10 to 12, first of all, tell us that we should focus on God's deeds of long ago. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out His right hand. Forget about me stretching out my hands till they're numb in prayer. I'm going to remember the time when God stretched out His hand, His mighty right hand. Yes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. So how long ago is long ago? You might be wondering. And I was wondering that too. So when I wonder things like that, I just write to my Old Testament colleagues to get an answer. How long ago was the Exodus compared to when, uh, uh, is it Asaph? Yes, when Asaph wrote this Psalm. And as usual, when I ask questions like that, I get different answers from them. And uh, so I get an estimate somewhere between 550 and 900 years. It's wonderful to have such uh, learned colleagues. 
to help you. Um, so, so basically, the problem is the setting of the psalm is vague, and there are two dates for the Exodus. So you kind of got a sliding scale there. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, this is Ridley College, and we've just had a doctoral student do a doctorate on the Asaph Psalms, Dave Ray, for anyone who knows it, and this is what he wrote. He said, the context of hopelessness lends itself to a setting in the exilic period and a redaction in the early post-exilic era as an after-the-fact reflection on the fall of both northern and southern kingdoms, wherein the prophetic role forms a theology of catastrophe. At this point, the Asaph collection, it becomes increasingly apparent that the key learnings of the Asaphite tradition traverse the exilic period, both from the text and the title. Was helpful? <laughs> so, once again, uh, he, he kind of puts it between seven and nine hundred years. That's the kind of idiot's guide. I'm going to round it up, okay, to a thousand years. So, there's, there's a good thousand years between the thing he expects to get comfort from and where he is now. Now, when, you, when your average Christian reads the Old Testament, it's such a vast period of time, it's kind of all contemporaneous for them. And I imagine someone could read this psalm and think, uh, uh, the deeds of the Lord that he finds comforting are those of his grandfather. Yeah, his grandfather had a little Asaph on his lap one day and he said to him, I, I can't really do a Mike Bird, but anyway. <laughs> So he talks to him about how amazing it was, the plagues and the gnats and the frogs and the blood and the darkness and then the wind and the rain and through the water we walked. And so little Asaph, uh, uh, here's how his parents were saved and uh, thinks, you know, that, that's, that's just so incredible. But it's not a thousand years. It's so many generations. And yet, this Old Testament saint, when he wants to be assured of the sovereignty and love of God, he looks back to the Exodus. He says, what I will remember, consider and meditate on are the mighty deeds of salvation at the Exodus. Have a look, verses 16 to 20. And it's a pretty stunning uh, description of the Exodus. So it, it's kind of uh, uh, the thinking long and hard about the Exodus is what we find here. That, that's what really gives him confidence. Have a look. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. A description of lightning, I assume. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. So finally we get what he's after. This is the Exodus uh, redemption. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So here we have a poetic description of God's great deliverance of his people from Egypt, revealing God's mighty hand and his pastoral heart. And it's a great description, isn't it? Verse 16, you kind of got the waters personified. They see God, even though the psalmist doesn't see God, he, he just sees the, there are no footprints, but the waters see God, it's unmistakable. Then in 17 and 18, we get rain, thunder, lightning, and an earthquake, and uh, maybe that's how the uh, sea got divided. Uh, that's one possibility. Maybe it's just a, uh, 
mythic description of the way in which God fights against chaotic evil and uh, water in the Old Testament in particular, the sea is a symbol of uh, um, uh, the chaotic um, uh, opposition to God. Uh, nonetheless, it's, it's an amazing description. Verse 20, in the midst of the chaos caused by God, he leads his people tenderly. It's a beautiful description, isn't it? Like a, like a shepherd, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So I think this is uh, helpful, friends. When the psalmist looks back for assurance of God's sovereignty and love to the Exodus event, he does so with great depth and at great length. Now, this is the power of poetry, isn't it? And good, good literature. He feels it in his bones when he talks about this event. The psalmist could have said, instead of the drama of 16 to 20, in direct discourse without any figurative language, he could have said, God saved his people with a great display of strength and sovereignty and led them with tender care through human representatives. That's kind of the uh, uh, propositional version of the psalm. It's not as good, is it? It doesn't grab you. And I think that's what uh, we're meant to do when we think back to the great saving events. We're meant to be grabbed by them. He doesn't just need to know something, he needs to feel something, to be moved by it, to respond viscerally as he responds to his troubles in prayer, which are moving him to great despair. So to find comfort and hope in his troubles, the psalmist describes at length God's great saving act for his people, the exodus from Egypt. And he not only describes it in length, he thinks deeply about what it says to him about the God who did that rescue. See verses 13 to 15. So how does a distant memory help? It reminds us of who God is, verses 13 to 15. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? One question there outweighs the six desperate questions. The one question exulting in the incomparability of God. God is unique. No one is like God. He puts it as a question. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So in times of trouble, in need of reassurance and relief, the psalmist looks to the irrefutable proof of God's love and sovereignty, the Exodus. And he's reminded of God's incomparable character, his holiness, his greatness. He's distinct, he's different, he's one of a kind. And see verse 14, it's not just for his people, it's for all peoples. So the Old Testament, even though sometimes it's thought to be ethnocentric and focused on Israel, there's always this element of anticipation of when the greatness of God would flood the world. Now, um, is this then a peculiar tactic of one Old Testament saint? Is it just this one guy uh, doing his best and uh, uh, thinking back to the Exodus? No, it's not. This, this is a pattern throughout the Bible. The great saving events in the Bible, there's only really two, the Exodus and the cross, are meant to bring us great assurance of the love and greatness of God. So he not only reflects deeply, but is assured 
of God's love in the midst of his troubles. The other reading that Christian uh, gave for us is from uh, the famous one from Romans 8, where the apostle talks about trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And then he says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, again, uh, it's, uh, it's not uh, an Austrian who wrote that. It's, uh, it's pretty full, full on, isn't it? And it's the same kind of uh, full-blooded uh, description of anguish that we found in Psalm 77. But in order to find comfort and relief in those circumstances, what does the Apostle Paul do? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things. And the love of Christ for Paul is demonstrated for us once and for all through the cross. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Uh, suffering and anguish in life is actually the norm in human history. We're just such a privileged uh, generation and or generations uh, as we sit here, we're kind of just a lick of paint on the end of the telegraph pole in human history. Most of human history experienced terrible pandemics and were not protected from them, for example. So what we're experiencing now shouldn't surprise us, even though it, it, uh, um, I'm not pretending it doesn't surprise and, and bring anxiety and disappointment to me. It's made all the harder, though, to bear when we feel that God is not with us. And Psalm 77 reminds us that there will be times of God's clear presence in our lives and also times of God's clear absence from our lives. And to feel assured of God's love, we don't look primarily to our experience of the goodness, in our, of, the goodness of God in our own lives. It's a good thing to do that, but it's not the best thing to do when you're in trouble. Remembering, considering, meditating on the power and love of God in the great acts of deliverance in the cross will turn our lamentation in, into praise, comfort and hope. So in Psalm 77, you've got the psalmist looking back 1,000 years. Our job is to look back 2,000 years to God's great act of deliverance in the cross. And I think it's, it's even more difficult for us because we're so addicted to novelty and we have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery we think our generation is just so good. Every other generation was so faulty. What would they know? Uh, but uh, the Bible's perspective is very different. The ancient can be very important. And the most important thing for us is what happened 2,000 years ago with God's new exodus, our redemption through the cross. Uh, so friends, if we need comfort and relief in times of trouble, we are to reflect at length and deeply on the cross. Uh, four little tips uh, to go uh, to finish with. Uh, first of all, as theological students, I think you should read books about the cross. Yep, the cross is inexhaustible. To have just one way of thinking about the cross is a travesty. Paul almost never says the same thing twice about the cross. And he said when he was in Corinth, he thought of nothing and said nothing except Christ crucified. And he didn't run out of things to say. So four uh, books you might have a look at, uh, the classic by John Stott, The Cross of Christ, um, the uh, uh, book by Leon Morris, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, uh, Graham Cole, former principal at the college, 
uh, wrote an excellent book called God the Peacemaker, and Fleming Rutledge, uh, a brilliant preacher in the US, has a book called Crucifixion. Uh, secondly, you should think about your baptism. Uh, we don't make enough of our baptisms. You should think about that as the most defining moment in your lifetime, because it too points back to the cross when you died and rose with him. Uh, thirdly, you should take part in the Lord's Supper and consider deeply how it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. And then fourthly, you should read the Gospels with imagination. Let them seep into your bones. Be surprised again by what happens. Uh, feel the crackling irony in so many uh, details of the Passion narratives. And then at the end, you can ask, what God is, a, is as great as our God? In times of trouble, we're encouraged to pray earnestly for comfort and belief. Surprisingly, perhaps thinking about past personal blessings in our own lifetime will not necessarily bring that comfort. Uh, instead, we should focus on the irrefutable proof of God's love in the cross and his incomparable character, which is revealed there. Let's pray. Uh, thank you so much, Heavenly Father, uh, that you did not spare your own son, and along with him you will graciously give us all things. Thank you for the fact that we can have our full confidence and assurance of your love and of your sovereignty through that dramatic event 2,000 years ago. Help us always to think about it and to live in accordance with it, to take up our own cross and to uh, be ever changed by it. For Jesus' sake, amen.